Hello, I'm Nicole Avedy and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Leona, and on behalf of everyone here at Better Red Than Dead, we are so excited to see you on Zoom to to celebrate Sophie Laguna's newest book, Infinite Splendors. Tonight, Sophie Laguna will be in conversation with Nicole Avedee, an absolute literary powerhouse. Nicole is a book writer, festival moderator, podcaster, and literary consultant. In addition to being the books writer for the Australian Financial Review and the facilitator at writers' festivals and other literary events. Nicole is also the host of the highly acclaimed literary podcast, Books, 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 and will be a judge at the 2021 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards for the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. Without further ado, I'll throw it to Nicole to introduce Sophie. Thank you so much, Leona, for that beautiful introduction. It's wonderful to be here tonight. I'd prefer to be there in the room with all of you in person, but virtually is the next best thing. It's an absolute delight to be here in conversation tonight with the wonderful Sophie Laguna. She doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. She started life studying law. She then worked for some years as an actor, and then she became a writer. She started writing books for children, which have been hugely successful and have been widely published overseas. Then in 2008, she published her first book for adults, One Foot Wrong. Her second adult novel, The Eye of the Sheep, won the 2015 Miles Franklin, Miles Franklin Literary Award, and her third, The Choke, won the 2018 Indie Book Award for Fiction. Both books were shortlisted for various other awards, including the prestigious International Dublin Impact Award. Sophie says that she decided to make writing a career after she saw the movie Thelma and Louise in 1992. Sophie, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for that generous introduction too. Now, I have to start by asking, why did seeing Thelma and Louise, one of my own all-time favourite movies in 1992, make you want to be a writer? I did not expect you to (laughs) say that. You've caught me by surprise. No, it was one of those, I suppose it was one of those moments that contribute to the the way things have unfolded. Um, Only in that I do remember seeing that film um, and I had a strong reaction to that film. I, I really enjoyed it, like, like so many others. But I do remember thinking maybe for the first time somebody wrote that script, somebody wrote the story. And I, I found that a really exciting idea. I remember now I noted who, who, who the writer was. Of course, I'm going to go blank, even though I've kept up with her career all the way through but of course now that I need it right in this moment it's it's disappeared um, but I was aware that she had written it and that the whole film had followed from her from from her writerly you know imaginings that's where it began. Sophie in each of your four adult novels you write or it's written in the form of a first person narrative by a child which is utterly convincing you are known for this, for recreating, for capturing the voices of young people so beautifully. How do you do that? How do you capture that voice in such an authentic way? Well, it's interesting, you know, you know, because as you say, I'm known for it. It's sort of, it's nothing I sort of, I didn't have an overarching, I don't have an overarching rationale to this. It's just, it comes naturally and perhaps, Perhaps a, a cheeky answer might be, I remember my sister saying to me once, Sophie, you are so five. I mean, that's one way. How of, old were you then? <laughs> 45. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one way to answer it, isn't it? I mean, I'm being playful, but that's one way to answer it. There is no how for me. If, if I had to think of how, 
I, I would never be able to do it. I suppose I'm just I'm I'm just um, doing what comes most naturally. Um, I, I never intended for it to to be this way, and I really hope that Lawrence, as a man in his fifties, is as authentic as he is when he is ten. And certainly, you know, when I was at acting school, I had um, a number of opportunities to play children, and I played I played children as, a, as an actor and a, a performer for many years. But I played older characters too, and I, I hope I can. Um, you know, I hope I can embody them also. Um, Do you think you've drawn on your acting in your writing too? To, I, I had read about that, that you've, you've done a lot of fairy parties and appeared as a lot of children in your acting days. I have. Do you, I have. Do you draw on your acting in that way, do you think, to create these incredibly real, authentic characters? I don't know if I'm, if I, if I'm drawing on my acting days, but I guess that same person who loves character and... Um, inhabits character um, or also acted you know which comes first the chicken or the egg I'm not sure I'm not sure I mean everything all of my life experience hopefully is contributing to to making these characters live I hope. So tonight obviously we're here to talk about Infinite Splendours your fourth adult novel published by Alan and Unwin. Mm. It opens in 1953 in a small country town called Hewland in the Southern Grampians in Victoria. Mm. How important is that setting to your novel and why did you choose that particular area? Well, it became, it became really important uh, as the story developed. Um, you know, I always worry, Nicole, that my answers um, are not going to sound sophisticated enough, honestly, because um, I, I, I had... You know, the book before um, Infinite Splendours was set um, on a river, the River Murray, the Murray River, and I wanted somewhere different and I decided I needed a mountain. And I'm not from Victoria, so I'm not familiar with, with Victoria's mountain ranges. I'd heard for many years about the Grampians, that people would take their holidays in the Grampians or they'd go walking there, although, you know, it wasn't in my own childhood. And I simply Googled Grampians. Where is it? Can I reach it? You know, will I be allowed to leave the kids? Is it close enough for me to leave the kids? Are there hotels near these mystical mountains? So, you know, I discovered, okay, I, I could reach the Grampians in, in, say, three hours. I borrowed a friend's hiking boots and hiking socks, threw them in the back of the car and, and um, set Hall's Gap into the GPS. I was, um, you know, the, the, the name Hall's Gap's pretty interesting. And um, Hall's Gap wasn't quite right. I arrived there and um, the town didn't feel quite right because all of, this, all of these decisions are very intuitive. Um, but I remember that very first afternoon I, I climbed Mount William and um, oh, it was, it was um, a deeply impressive um, experience and the story was already beginning to sort of form and so in those early stages when I'm getting to know characters and choosing setting um the experience is very uh what what's the word um euphoric you know because I'm caught up in this story and then the beauty of this mountain begins to feed the story and my imagination I'm invariably alone and it'll be the first time I would have um, been able to get away from my the demands of my domestic life so all the all, all the um, ingredients are right for for euphoria. <laughs> I'm going to be asking you in a minute. Yeah. We're going to start by talking about the Loman family, but then we are going to come to talk about a particular mountain that features in this story and why it was so important for you to pick somewhere that yeah. had a mountain like that. Let's yeah. start first of all with the family at the centre of this book. So in the opening chapters, we meet them, the Loman family. They're very close knit. There's Lawrence, who's ten, who becomes the main character of your book his younger brother Paul, who is eight, and their mother Louise. This is set, as I said, in 1953, and we learn that their father died during the war uh, at the time that Louise was pregnant with Paul and when um, Lawrence was only two. I'd like to talk or for you to talk a little bit first about, about Lawrence. When we first meet him, what is he like? What sort of a little boy is he? Well, I really like, um, Nicole, I want to say, the way you describe them as close-knit. Yeah, I mean, that, that, 
that hasn't been said before and it's that's true and it, I, I really did want to establish that they are very close-knit they're really bonded the three of them um Lawrence is um sensitive he's fun loving he's confident he enjoys school he enjoys home he's when I say sensitive he's intuitive you know he can pick up on things that aren't necessarily spoken about about his mother um he's protective he's protective of his mother and of his brother he's aware that um that he's growing up of course he's aware he's growing up without a father and that his mother's very brave he admires her because she works um and I think it bonds him more intensely with that mountain where the, the mountain Mount Wallace behind them what's so, he like at school Sophie he's good at school he's really good at school he's the first to put up his hand he engages with the subjects. He's fortunate enough to have teachers who are committed to his learning. Um, and Mrs. Sinclair introduces him to painting. Mm-hmm. And um, she gives every child an easel and she has some imagination herself. And, and she says, look to the window and paint what you see. And Lawrence experiences for the first time what it is to leave his own, um, how, do you, how do you put it, to sort of transcend ordinary thought and enter the painting. That's what it is like. Time stops. And that becomes his favourite subject, doesn't it? He really loves his art. He looks forward to Friday morning. And she picks him out as a gifted child. She gives him a sketchbook and some pencils and she says, you have a real gift for this, you should stay with it. And she she has enough life experience or imagination or whatever it is, yes, to see it. Um, He is gifted and from that moment on, he begins to see, he begin he describes it doesn't he as living a double life he sees he sees the ordinary world and he sees how it might be in paint and the yeah, opportunities for painting everywhere everywhere he looks tell me about paul the younger brother he's 2 years younger is he academic like his brother no, he is he's less academic he's cheeky he has a great sense of humor and i really enjoyed that about him they would bounce off each other they were rude. They were fun. Um, there was some rivalry, but um, greater than their rivalry was their love and their loyalty. Um, he's athletic and uh, mischievous. Yeah. And when we meet these boys, we have a very strong sense in those opening chapters of, I, I think I've heard people say idyllic, certainly that yeah. this is a very happy family. There's no father there, and that's obviously sad, but they're getting on with things. The boys are having a very normal, happy life. They play hide and seek. There's a gap in the wall between them and their bedrooms. They talk to each other at night. So we set the scene for a very happy, contented family and for boys living a very happy childhood. There's one more character we haven't talked about that I've wanted to come back to, and that is Wallace the Mountain. Lawrence refers to throughout as he. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Wallace and how Lawrence feels about him. Well, interestingly, you know, the decision to make Wallace a he is something that I I didn't make any intellectual decision about. I just would have been um, writing the story, enjoying the story, and Wallace would have appeared on the page as a he. And um, if that fits for me, and clearly it did, then I will work with that and and develop it. I think um, the mountain uh, partly is a kind of a father figure for for Lawrence uh, and but he, but the mountain is also a boat at different times a sail um a kind of custodian of the land god I think I think the mountain sometimes I think the mountain is god I never say that but it's occurred to me lately mm. uh, for Wallace for, for, for Lawrence mm. um you know Lawrence describes he walks his pathways he he spends time with his trees and his animals. Um, yeah, Lawrence is besotted with Wallace and loves to paint him. He's really, uh, he, he loves to uh, paint him. Let's go to Louise then, the boy's mother. What mm. sort of a mother is she? What's, what's her relationship like with her sons? Devoted. Um, she takes their schoolwork very seriously. Um, somewhat aloof. The boys experience her, especially Lawrence, as if she lives at one end of a bridge 
that can never be crossed and it pains him. Um, they wait for her touch. They're hungry for those intimate, tender moments. She's, she's, a, she's consistent. She's loving in her way, patient mostly. But Lawrence can feel there are ghosts, is that the word, in, in, in her past that she doesn't speak of. And he's curious. At, at the age of 10, he becomes curious, understandably, about what hasn't been said. He picks up on all of that. Um, she has a job. Um, she works, she does the numbers at the local dairy. She's very re a reliable worker. She did the training herself. And Lawrence also can see, can see that. Um, that's Louise. There's a lovely line at one point where he says, even if mother was close, yeah. she kept the part back and that was the part we wanted. I think yeah. that, that goes with what you're saying about her just holding herself just, just beyond reach. They don't quite get from her everything that they want. That's it. And, and that, that I, you know, I hint at explanations for that that lie in Louise's past. Yes. Some pain around intimacy yes. that prevents that from happening. Now, I should say to everybody listening to this, there's a little bit of dancing around the topic here or there's about to be because one of the fabulous things, one of the many fabulous things about this book is that it's full of revelations. And so we want to be very careful tonight not to uh, create or to give away any spoilers that will spoil the story. So bear with me as I dance around the topic a little bit. What I want to say now, Sophie, is that all of that pretty much takes us, the, the novel's divided into three parts. And all of that pretty much is part one, set in 1953 when mm -hmm. Lawrence is 10. Mm -hmm. At the end of part one, something terrible happens to Lawrence mm -hmm. and he changes overnight. I want to ask you now about how he changes. So in part two, we see him from the age of 10 through to 25. In the immediate aftermath of this terrible thing that happens to him, he describes how he feels. He says, I felt myself dividing. There were two selves to choose from, one inside, one outside. He says at another stage, I was separate from school, from learning and from myself. What does he mean, Sophie? How does he change? Well, he's no longer, um, it's as if a part of him have, has left his own body. It's too painful to be there. Um, he feels separated from his mother and his brother. So he he was he was bonded with them before, and it's as if there's something uh, there's a wedge has been put between him and them. I think he's damaged, and that damage prevents intimacy. In the same way, interestingly, it's, you know, it's it, there's an echo there, isn't there? Between, I'm, I'm, it just occurs to me now, with Louise being at the end of a bridge. Um, something has happened that has shattered his sense of self mm. and just being present, he's detached or, or cut off. So let's look at in those early days, as I say, this, in this second part we see him go from 10 to 25. In those early days when he's still at school, mm. he, he was, we remember, a very enthusiastic little boy, the first mm. to put his hand up, knew all the answers, loved going to school. Mm. How does he deal with school now? Well, he's in the room. He can see that he's in the room. He can see the other desks. He can see the other kids. He can see the blackboard, but there's no connection between him and those objects. So it's as if he, trance is not the right word, but he's, he's just separate. He's separate. He's caught. He's lost somewhere. I mean, you know, when this really happens, that's the privilege or the space that writing fiction allows us isn't it you know it's a construct he's able to articulate this process of being split and being separate and there being various selves and 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 he has he has that awareness but that's the luxury of fiction and that's what makes it so exciting I can find words for, for this state that um that it's rare to be able to you know find words for being this way but he, but he has an element of self-awareness. Um, he's carrying shame that he, that, he, that he didn't have. 
and it makes all the um, all the ordinary business of life quite excruciating. And that shows yeah. with him there's yeah. both physical and mental manifestations of that. The yeah. mental manifestations we see in the sort of descriptions that he's given that we talked about earlier, I was separate from everybody. Yeah. One very marked physical manifestation, which is obvious, What's he, he was a very articulate little boy. Yeah. What happens after this event takes place? He has difficulty speaking. So he's unwell, you know, in the crisis he becomes quite unwell and when he emerges from that illness, if you like, he um, has a stammer. And it's worse in school, but it's there around his family and um, it functions, I think, on a couple of levels. So at the same time as it prevents him from communicating easily with others, it is also for him a form of protection, as contradictory as that sounds. Keeping those words back, um, keeping him separate is one way of attempting um, a boundary, I suppose. Um, yeah, that, that was my um, understanding of how this stammer functioned for him. Um, yeah, so he is uncomfortable around other people, but um, his inner life, there is much going on. There is still much going on. That painter is still in there. And he says he's, he, he doesn't lift the brush at that time, but um, he still continues to see the world, um, to see the opportunities for painting. Yeah, he describes painting um, as travelling along a road towards a destination that will never be reached. And he still sees those roads um, there before him, but he is cut off from the desire to paint. And Sophie, the portrait that you paint of the trauma that he suffers, the physical manifestation, the mental manifestation, is a very rich, complex, convincing portrait. Mm. One of the teachers says at one stage, to him or to his mother, I think, mm. it's like he's just come back from the war. Yeah. So it's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm guessing what you're saying is it's as if he's got, which yeah. post-traumatic, yeah. post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. I wondered, um, did you research that? Did you, what sort of research did you do that enabled you to understand so well how a childhood trauma like that would manifest itself first on a child? We, we'll come later to talk about an adult. I think it's just the same the same way anyone who is listening to the media now and reading and being aware um, of, of, of what's been coming out. Mm. Um, and um, I remember watching a documentary by a very a filmmaker. Um, you know, so there's, so there's nothing specific I have for you here. There are little sparks mm. where I watched a young boy tell his story of, of of something similar to what happens in in my story, and maybe that's a seed, you know. And it was so unbearable and so terrible that maybe a part of me needs to maybe a part of me needs to visit it and know it. Maybe it heals it somehow. Maybe it makes it feel better to at least have lived it with him and be true to that. And I don't, that's a very difficult thing for me to find the words to make sense of. But I. To hear him tell it after the fact and then to find, um, you know, to want to turn away from it is is just, it's, I, I struggle to find the right words. Maybe it, it all I can come up with is maybe it's um, a healing to actually be brave enough to go there. Yes, damn it, to be brave enough to have to endure it and and, and be in the truth of it is better than having some person describe it after the fact as their life falls to pieces. Um, it, yeah, it's unbearable. It's unbearable, but yet something, yeah, I, I'm not doing a, a great job of describing it because it's strong no. stuff, I suppose. So, you know, yeah, it, it's all unconscious. It's, you know, my desire to, to write the story comes from a place that I don't analyse or fully understand. I'm just doing it because it's there and asking to be done. But, you know, research is all around, isn't it, in, in 2020, um, building up inside of me, I suppose. Then comes the urge to do something about it. What 
and you know what can I do I suppose this is the best I can do so he limps through the rest of his school years this little boy who was getting brilliant reports who was the smartest kid in the class he gets through school and then he doesn't know what's going to happen his mum when he's 19 his mum gets him a job at the dairy where she works as you say doing the accounts yeah how does he get on there out in the world away from school how does he get on with the other men that he works with I'm glad you've asked me because I've had I haven't had an opportunity yet to speak about the dairy and I love the dairy well I know you know how to milk I've read somewhere that that there's something we haven't talked about which is the cow who plays a very important role in this book she does I read that you Sophie learned how to milk cows at a young age and were very good at it. yeah because we grew up on a converted dairy farm yeah, from the age of 11, we moved to a dairy farm and we had a cow lady and guess, yeah, and, and, and yeah, I, I was the family cow milker. Um, uh, so, you know, Lawrence is resistant to having to leave the, the borders of home and Mount Wallace. He feels very safe there and his lovely neighbour, Mrs Barry, mm. and the yard and the house, Beverly. He, 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 you know, the house is Beverly and um he's another kind of character in the story and he's resistant but he can see his mother's anxiety um for him and he wants to do it for her he knows how important it is for her so he braves it and um unexpectedly he's pretty good at it and he's very soothed by being but by the by the routine around it by getting up at at 4 a.m for the first milk in, and, and being taken in Bill Ra- Bill Granger's car to the dairy, he loves the cattle. They wait for him there every morning. He says that the day begins in the eyes of the cattle. I like that. That those first, yeah, first sparks of light in in the cattle's eyes as they, as they wait for him at the gate. They're very familiar to him, and he sings to them and he milks them. Mm. And the other men mostly leave him alone. And Alan, one of the supervisors. Um, you know, gives him words of encouragement and he enjoys the ritual. And that's right. He begins the first um, day working at the dairy, that very first day when he returns home, he climbs the mountain and he hasn't climbed the mountain in many years. And it's a euphoric, it's a kind of ecstasy for him. And he reaches the top of the mountain and he looks out over the world and he says, I can do it. I can do it. I can get to that dairy each day. I can milk. And then I can climb the mountain and be here and, and sit in that silence. And I remember the first time I heard that silence was the first time I climbed Mount William. And I hadn't encountered a silence like it and looking from the peak of, of that mountain out onto the world. And um, that's how it was for Lawrence. So the dairy was a pretty good place. So he works there until when he's 24, his mother yeah. dies. And after her funeral, there's a very powerful scene when we see he goes back to the house, he goes back to Beverly. Paul at this stage is older. He leaves the home. Yep. His mum's no longer in the home. He's in the home by himself. He's lost Mrs Barry also, the beautiful next-door neighbour that, that we haven't talked about but who he had a lovely rapport with. Yeah. And he's pretty miserable. And what we see him doing in that scene is horrifically looking at the beam in the kitchen ceiling, thinking and we then see him deliberately going out to the shed to fetch rope and a stool. Mm. And we have him saying, all hope is gone. So it's pretty clear what he's contemplating. Mm. But then he sees something. Mm. He sees a scene that almost transfixes him and mm. that makes him change direction. Mm. Could you describe what he saw? Yeah, he's he's on his way to the shed isn't he to get the stool the milking stool which is another kind of a symbol through the story and um he sees a crested pigeon in the apple tree the apple tree is also another symbol through the story Mm -hmm. and there's a beautiful purple and and a gold in the wing of the crested pigeon and the jaunty crest above his head and the pigeon leaves the bough of the apple tree and flies toward Mount Wallace and as if he's drawing Lawrence's gaze to the mountain. And Lawrence turns to the mountain and it's as if the mountain says to Wallace, 
it's up to you, paint me. Yeah, yeah, a- I, yeah, yeah. That's what Wallace. That's what Lawrence sees and hears, as if there is something that only you can do. There is something that only you can do for me, and it's up to you to do it. And there's a lovely line at that point. You have Lawrence's yeah. going through this thought process, and he says, yeah. "There was something hidden inside Wallace, something only I could reveal." Yeah. And so what he does is he goes and he paints Wallace. So it seems to me from that point mm. we have a very clear message that mm. it's almost like the combination of the two, Wallace and painting, mm. literally really save his life at mm. that point. And he goes home after he's painted that day mm. and he pulls out a book he was given as a child called Letters from the Masters. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that book? And I do have to ask, is it a real book? I couldn't find it. It's but a real book. It's a real book. Not exactly the same book, but a version of, there are a couple of collections of letters between um, uh, 19th century painters. But and, tell us yeah, about I have the one book. of them. I have one of them. And wow. I've had it for years and loved it for years. What could be more inspiring than a collection of these real letters between painters as they struggled with their work and their families and their finances and um but it's so exciting you know as I'm speaking as as you're speaking to me about that moment I'm remembering as he walked home um from that from that first painting that he does after after there's been that you know separateness from painting he returns to it and he walks home and he's almost in a daze isn't he he's he's there's an he's Mm. ecstatic Mm. yeah and 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 there are fewer questions in his mind after that there's a, the, a lot of the stress has dissipated and he notices everything around him in crystal clear detail and it's absolutely beautiful. And even everything in his home and nature around him, he sees still lives in every object. He tastes, everything tastes different. Yeah, the world is suddenly enormous and he sees as if, yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's beautiful for him. And they really, they really nourish him. Those letters. There's something he then gets. Yeah, yeah. As the book progresses, he orders paints. He starts to paint more. And then we have him saying, "I, st- I read one of those letters every night." And yeah. he says, "Every letter in the book was written to me. I was not alone." Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? About that feeling of comfort that he got from those letters. So um, it's the only book that I refer to in the house. And um, he was given it many, many years ago and it's always had enormous significance on his shelf. He's always been aware of exactly where it is, but he hasn't opened it. And he opens it again and there, and there are these, these riches. And um, there, there are as many paintings or more paintings in the book than letters. And um, so at the same time as, as reading these intimate um, uh, words be- between uh, artists and their wives and artists and their um, bankers and friends, um, he looks at the paintings. He looks at the paintings. He's completely inspired. And the letters, um, they're, they're very descriptive and they're emotive and they're very wordy and they describe whole other worlds, Parisian worlds, um, worlds so far from his own, you know, small dominion there. Uh, and it's tremendously exciting and he's wide open and hungry to learn and um, his life changes and they're reassuring and they're company. Yes, I suppose for a man who has um, such difficulty connecting in the real world, there is um, the, those letters are even more um, loaded and, and the paintings are even more exciting and we can't forget that this is a really talented painter so all of that imagination and scope and power is there in that individual I mean it has been um is the word thwarted but it is there this is who this man is so if you give a man made of that with that much depth and he's a really intelligent man who has been cut off from from everything or from so much and then that one book well that's just like an explosion and he's ready. He's ready. He's whatever it is. Is, is he twenty four? He's ready. He's ready to see, and he's ready to paint, and he's ready to read. So um, it's a rich, rich experience. We really get that sense. Then we move into part three, at which point he's fifty one, and we see that 
that this is the life that he's created for himself. It's a mm. life of some solitude, yeah. but he surrounds himself with his painting. And there are yeah. two other things that mm. that he draws comfort from yeah. as well by this state. When he talks about the paintings, he sees them as family. They shield him from the world outside. So it's this concept of the paintings mm. as being protection. There's yeah. something else he develops a passion for, and that's music, not just any music. It's the music for the opera, uh, Madame Butterfly. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that and the way, mm. the impact that that has on him and how he feels about that piece of music and why it becomes so significant to him. It was great fun to play with Madame Butterfly, the wonderful, wonderful Italian lyrics and their, um, yeah, just just uh, tremendous fun stitching those lines into the story where I needed them. Um, early on, um, as I was developing this character, I had him listening to Madame Butterfly. So the idea wasn't, it wasn't, um, again, you know, an intellectual decision. I was playing with the character and writing him in a kind of dramatic monologue and he listened to Madame Butterfly and flew to the stars with those, with, with the, the, the music. And so I thought, how can he have it? How can he have Madame, but Madame Butterfly? How can I have it in my story? And um, I thought, well, it, it could be referred to in this book of letters. How convenient. So there again, you know, such freedoms in the life of a, a fiction writer. And so I created a letter where Madame Butterfly is referred to and I read about this opera. And so he asks his brother and he hears it for the first time and it's another life-changing moment. And then he absolutely insists on, on hearing it. And um, he plays it and plays it and plays it. So it becomes like a, um, not a, a soundtrack or a backdrop to um, his work, to his painting. Occasionally he'll drink beer in the evenings and listen to Madame Butterfly and, and drift over his, the work that he's done during the day. So it's quite beautiful for him. So even though... You know, um, yeah, he has made a life for himself. And although it's a life of solitude, our sense is that it is still a beautiful life. And for him, it's a beautiful life. And there's I'm so glad you say that. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you see that and so glad you say that because I think it. I think it is a beautiful life. And, I'm, you know, sometimes I feel defensive on his behalf because, and understandably, you know, different readers will bring a, a different interpretation to the story. And, yes, there is that trauma that's there. But um, I like to, I mean, really the rest of the story, a great deal of the story is about Lawrence's um, recording of light, learning about light, seeing light and understanding light, quite literally. And um, so to be in that world for me as a writer was was that was really light and um, a very beautiful place and perhaps made all the more beautiful um, for that which was lost or in contrast to the darkness. Um, so I was very always, always happy to be there. There's something that Lawrence says about Madame Butterfly when he's explaining it to somebody, why he likes it so much, and he explains that it's a very sad story. That's but right. he says there is beauty in sadness. And it seems to me that that was something that could really be said about this book of yours. Your writing is at its peak, I think. The writing is absolutely beautiful. It's a very sad story in so many ways. But it seemed to me that that little exp that expression, that there is beauty in sadness, could be just as easily said about the book as he says it about Madame Butterfly. I didn't even realise it. I didn't even realise it, but you are so right. That is obviously, oops, see? <laughs> I've been caught out, not caught out, but, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's what you created, Sophie. Now I can see I think I'm going to sneak in one final question and then I'm sure there's lots of people who want to ask you questions. My final question is this. Mm -hmm. You once said when you were asked why you write, I write for justice and for the pleasure that comes from creating music with words. We've just talked about the creating the music with words. And then in 2015, after you won the Miles Franklin for Eye of the Sheep, you said something a bit similar. You said, it's so hard that children come into the world so innocent mm. and have to find a way to survive when life can be so unfair. Mm. Maybe I am trying to right wrongs with these young voices. So that concept of writing for justice, of writing wrongs, 
Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, can I respond by saying I remember um, Margaret Atwood was asked, she said, when I'm asked why do I write, she said she could come up with a different answer every single day of her life. I like that because yeah. I could too. So, you know, even as you're saying all of those things, I can hear their contradictions. <laughs> at the very same time, you know, at the very same time I could say, as superficial as it sounds, I write for pleasure. I write mm. because I want to. Mm. I don't ask at all why. I mean, I can say that I, in theory, um, you know, I, I want to write wrongs, but certainly that's not what puts me on the chair or that's not what pushes the pen. Not on a conscious level. I only, I like playing. I like making things up. I love characters. I like dressing up and, and being somebody else, or I always did. Um, I like make-believe. I like words. I like the juice in words. Um, and I like dangerous. I like danger in, in, in fiction, in fiction. And I like, I like being without rules. I like freedom because I really struggle. You know, um, real life is not the same as that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, st I struggle. And um, th there's great freedom in fiction. And I like going to, I like, there are certain truths I really want to put words to. I really want to put words to. And I, I there's a great release. There's a great release in the feeling of doing it. And it's calming. It's I'm going to sneak in, I'm going to sneak in one more question. The one thing that's different, and we, we haven't talked about this specifically, but all of your adult novels, deal to some extent with childhood trauma, with children who have been abused or who somehow or other have been betrayed or let down by the adults who trust them. Yeah. In each of your three previous books, we've only heard from the point of view of the child whilst they remain a child. Yeah. It seems that this one, yeah. you, well, you've gone into a whole new realm yeah. in that you've taken it to the next step because yeah. in this book you talk about the impact of childhood trauma not just on the child yeah. but on the man that he becomes. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how did you enjoy that experience? Was it liberating? How yeah. did you enjoy that as opposed to the previous books when you were just describing the impact of that trauma on the child as a child? Well, I'm glad you asked me because I enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I began there with him as an adult. Mm. He was a different adult when we began. He was a different man. Um, and as I got to know him, gee, I just loved him more and more. I'm missing him <laughs> at the moment, um, you know, I because to have him, you know, in, in my life in that period of time that I wrote him was really calming. I know. It's, how do I, how do I uh, explain it? He, I don't know. But it was calming. It was really calming and I feel like I'm missing him because I feel like he's moved or something, you know, he's moved away in a good way, in a good way for him, he's moved. Um, uh, uh, but what, it was thrilling. It was cr completely thrilling and it was different and it was an expansion of my, um, you know, I did, I did go forward, you know, I, I loved his use of, of language because at the same time as being da damaged in some ways, he was really he was really bright and, and wordy and I, I um, you know, I loved him for his failings. I loved writing his failings. It gives me, uh, it's liberating, you know. The brother brought the wife around. The brother brought his young wife, his young pregnant mm. wife around. He described that and he just said, no, no, you know. He was pissed off and he was jealous mm. and, and the brother didn't come again with the wife and he was quite insightful about and how and why that that played out yeah and um I love how these characters don't aim to please all the time they're not charming or nice necessarily they're deeply flawed and I find that um is just a great way to a place to be that I, I'm yeah I'm struggling to find all the right words I, I I love them for that I love I love them for that you know for his stammer and 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 his crazy height and his you know gang he was gangly he took great powerful strides up across the mountain very passionate man mm. and i loved his love of nature he was he he got quite caught up with the poetry of it all 
Mm. You know, and I love I loved him for that. Um, like I liked how one day he said he walked to the the music of blowflies, the wings of blowflies. It was what how did a symphony of wings or something or other. Um, that goes back to the sensitivity you talked about earlier. That he was a sensitive yeah. child. He remained a sensitive man. Yeah. But he can be quite dramatic, can't he, you know, in his descriptions of nature and painting. And um, I did love that about him. I, I know that in a different world he might have been, well, he would have been really social and very probably um, quite a powerful man in the world. But I like to think that the power that he didn't get to enact in the world would have poured into those paintings. I think the paintings were all the richer for his deprivation. I think so. Sophie, how necessary do you think it is to physically travel to and become familiar with a chosen novel setting? That's a very timely question from a writer. Well, if I'm going to be absolutely truthful, I don't think it is absolutely necessary. It's terrific fun and it's, it's a wonderful thing to do and, of course, it's inspiring, but I don't think it's necessary. Not really. If you if you needed to, if you were caught in a room that you could never leave, you could make it your own mountain. The trick isn't. It's not about reflecting reality. It's 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 about making a world, and that's the author's imagination. It's lovely if a mountain can spark imagination, and it's great to go and have a, a short holiday. But no, it's all. I don't think you need to go anywhere. I've never said that before. I'm only thinking it right now. I mean, it's about if I, in my own imagination, saw, decided that the mountain was surrounded by pink flowers and I saw those pink flowers every day in my imagination, I wrote about them every day so that they came alive to me, then they come alive to the reader. Um, That's what's working. It's not that I'm doing such a great job describing the real grampians anyone probably who went there would go so you've got this so damn wrong i'm probably i mean you know i've never been great at facts i mean i do my best but you you know what i mean it's about commitment to imagination i think so don't worry about time restrictions or getting there that's what i think i'll probably i'm probably you know the next conversation we have i might completely have to contradict myself This is what I'm thinking right now. Sophie, I've got another question for you. Mm You, I read a quote from you somewhere where you were saying that you were a mixture of optimism and of pessimism. True. (laughs) I was wondering how that played out in your writing generally and in particular in this book. So here we have someone who's suffered enormous trauma. It's a good question. Of probably... I mean, it's all, it's very difficult to compare things, but each of the young protagonists in each of your four adult novels has suffered or been exposed to some childhood trauma. But let's talk about that concept of how the optimism and pessimism in your personality comes yeah. through in your writing. Gosh, yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a, a range of different responses to different um, aspects of, of the question. Um, yeah, d- different aspects of the question. I, I think really... If you look at each of the books, and I could only do this in hindsight, certainly when I'm ju- I'm just doing what I need to do for, for reasons I don't even ask the reasons, but if, you know, really they are all about a push, they are all a, uh, an insistence towards the light, all of them. So there, I mean, if you wanted to analyse it, I suppose there is, that's what they're about. Um but I, but it, see, I, I look at, I look at these things maybe differently. I'm, I'm, it's constantly fed back to me that they are about trauma. But it's my belief that every child knows trauma. Mm-hmm. It's my belief that being born is traumatic. Mm-hmm. Entry into the world is there anything more? I mean, that's pretty traumatic. I mean, it's very um, essence that what happens to us, and from there, from there on, on it goes. And parent, you know, you were saying all of the stories your protagonists are let down by their by the adults but uh, uh, isn't that the definition of isn't that what happens to us all in different ways so i i push it to extreme but it's clearer in extremists and and the function of art is clearer 
in, ex- in extreme. You write for justice, but do you think there is any transcendent aspect to justice, whether religious, political, or just in art? Yes, I think I do think that. I mean, I might not be fully understanding your question, um, transcendence, injustice. I think I understand it. I mean, definitely we can transcend. There are moments of transcendence in in art and he experiences them and all things are made just in those moments. And I don't think everyone gets gets to experience them. So my take, and it's not going to be anyone else's, I don't think, is that he's quite, that he's blessed in about a thousand ways and he lives a long, rich life. Now, no, no one's going to think that, are they? Uh, that's what I think. But um, maybe it's my passionate relationship too with solitude hmm. uh, and I'm hungry for solitude. I understand he has too much. But many don't make it. Many people who suffer, you know, what he did won't make it so far and won't leave such a huge contribution behind that will go on to, in my imagination, you could say, uh, that will go on to um, nourish whole generations of Australians and, and, and people from all over the world. See, I mean, I'm being crazy, aren't I? That's the optimism. That sounds like a pretty good place to wrap up. Sophie, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. Good luck promoting this beautiful transcendent is a lovely, lovely description. Good luck with promoting this wonderful transcendent book. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.